0: Turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 1, we're going to read the first four verses as you've been accustomed to here in responsive reading, you should see them on the screens perhaps matt last week we didn't have it on there and we forgot to put it in the worship folder this morning so hey that's that's the reason the guys didn't have it up there so thank you sorry about that see that's the thing about new relationships there's grace on all sides (laughs) we work our way through it humbly and uh, graciously but let's read that together. I'll read the first, we all read the second, I'll read the third, we all read the fourth. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. First 1, chapter 1 of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you open our heart, open our mind, control even our attitudes for the purpose of teaching us from your word. May we be the student as you are the great teacher. Help us to understand what it means and obey what it implies. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. may be seated. We're going to begin a series through the book of Titus. It's a short book. It's very practical. It shouldn't take us very long to get through it. We'll take our time. And I thought it would probably give us uh, a great place to start learning together as to what God expects of us, His children, in the church that He built. And this book, I think, will give us the opportunity to do just that. Titus, the recipient of this book, was left in Crete. That's an island in the Mediterranean. And his purpose was to organize a network of church plants. Really, they were house churches. It would be decades before churches would have the opportunity to build their own buildings, as we are accustomed to. In the early church, they met together in homes. and Sometimes for the reason why, uh, there were persecution, or in many ways, that's, that's what they had, so that's where they met. And the letter was written, we'll get into this as we go, but the topic is how to organize these churches. Titus is put in charge of doing just that. And the title of the series itself we'll call, Do It Right. And that's our goal according to the standards of Scripture, because any church is capable of doing it wrong. And that's not what we'd want to do. But invariably, being humans who serve ourselves better than anyone else, that will tend to dictate what's important and what is priority. But rather, we're going to let the Scriptures do that. The Scripture is our guide and our priority. If you think about it, and I want you to think this way, here's how we'll, we'll frame this out this morning. Churches are incredibly difficult to measure as far as any standard of performance or success. To ask the question, when do we know that a church is being successful? In the rest of the world, that's very easy. If, if you're talking about a sports team... If they're winning games, the team is doing all right. If they're losing games, the team needs some help, right? In the form of uh, the business world, if if your business is making money or at least trending in that direction, sometimes these startups take a little while to make their first dollar. I I remember reading the statistic of how long it took Amazon to actually make the first dollar. And for the longest time, it's all speculation. But you can look at their bottom line to see whether or not they're getting anywhere. Same would be true in education. Are the students or the children passing their tests and showing that they're actually learning the material they're supposed to be taught? But with the church, that's a little different. Instinctively, we want to use metrics like uh, budgets. Buildings and bodies, like you all. If the church has a, a large budget in their meeting budget, that's good. If their buildings are being maintained or if they're adding to their building and grounds, that looks good. And if there are more people there each week instead of less people there each week, all of those should point to the fact that that church is doing all right. But really, that's not the way to measure The maturity or the success of a church because those have very little to do with the spiritual. And any reasonable person would realize when you're talking about that, those numbers could be misleading. And we have many examples of really big churches full of people with sprawling campuses that don't teach God's word and don't obey it. That's not a healthy church, and that's not the church that we're going to read about in Titus or any other New Testament letter or book. So we're going to need other metrics to look at whether or not a church is being successful. And here's the bottom line that we're going to use over and over again in the weeks that we spend in the book of Titus. Here's the basis for all of these things. God designed the church, so he gets to say how it's put together. It's his church. He built it, gave it to us. His son died for it. So he gets to say what's important and what's not. What's the real measure of a church and what isn't at all. We'll come back to that over and over again. Now here's your snapshot of where we're going in the weeks to come. There are three chapters in Titus. It's a short book. And the first chapter, we're going to concern ourselves with what Paul gives us as far as the character and conduct of the church's leaders. The entire first chapter is given over to organizing and putting in place good leadership, qualified leadership. We're going to read a whole list of things that should be expected of a minister. And because of this thing we call inspiration of Scripture, they're not suggestions. They're commands that a man is either qualified or disqualified to be in leadership within the church called an elder or a pastor by measuring up to this list of things that we're going to study and the second chapter that's the character and conduct of the church's membership that's you all and we're going to learn what the Lord expects of you us, your leaders are members too and how you're to treat one another how you're to teach one another, how you're to relate, to encourage one another. And then the third chapter is given over to the character and conduct of the church's witness. That is what we're supposed to do with what God gives us in here, within these four walls. Take that outside these four walls and engage the culture around us. We're going to learn that the culture that these folks lived in in Crete was a rough culture we're also gonna read that there's really not a lot said about them engaging the culture as to do away with it but to live within it differently as God's children and win those people in the culture over to the cause of Christ by being Christ like yourselves and that's the end goal to carry out the Great Commission. Now this little book is intensely theological. If you just studied the theological ramifications of this tiny little book, we could spend months and months and months. Paul's going to bring in a lot of things we hear elsewhere in other books of the Bible. But the letter is also mercifully practical. You'll have a hard time finding a much more practical how-to book in the new testament and that will be quite refreshing along with uh, the theology is the application of it all there in one place now you could call this a condensed book because of its shortness kind of like a a jar of Campbell's soup you have to add a can of water to it to make it right it's condensed they fit it in one can instead of a, a bigger can And when we add the water of careful study to this book, we're going to find out that its volume will double, maybe even more. It's like one of those houses you go into that's got a great floor plan and it looks bigger on the inside than it did when you drove up on the outside. That's what we're going to find with this little book. And if we're careful, we're going to uncover quite a number of things. The first four verses that we just read serve as an introduction and introductions are usually what? Boring, aren't they? <laughs> we're, we're talking in our Bible study this past Wednesday, we had another introduction to the book of Philippians we're going to be studying. And I shared with them that of all the memorable messages I've ever heard, even the ones that I considered that changed my life, I don't ever remember any of them being an introduction to something. But I do believe that somewhere those messages that changed my life were resting on the footer of a good introduction somewhere at some point. All of the things we learn as Christians have to be supported on other pieces of information. So we spend our time in an introduction to make sure we get the whole story. We hear Paul out. These verses are inspired scripture. So we don't skip them over. We study them and make sure we understand them. So we'll organize our thoughts regarding these four verses of introduction this way. There'll be three points. Number one, who is the church for? Number two, what is the church about? And number three, how the church knows it. I know that's horrible grammar but I tried to make these easy where you could write them down real quick and keep them in, in your head. But those three again, who is the church for, what is the church about, how does the church know it? So you've got a who, a what, and a how. And with those three, we'll seek to understand and obey these four, four verses. So number one, who is the church for? We go back to verse one, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, And here's our answer to that question. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's who the church is for. God's elect. But we have two matters right out of the gate. This man who introduces himself as the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the most credentialed man in the New Testament never mentions his credentials when writing. This man was as striped as a veteran could possibly be in the field of missions. But he seeks, we see this in many of the letters he writes, he introduces himself simply as the slave or the servant of Christ for the purpose of serving these churches. And then if you want to call that his calling, and that was delivered on the road to Damascus in brilliant, dramatic fashion. His function as a sent one, an apostle, was to go into all the world. And we see this unfold in Acts as he goes on these missionary journeys, starting churches, preaching the gospel, and people are saved and brought into the church as the church grows. But an apostle simply means sent out with a message from a messenger. It wasn't his message, he was given that message. We see that clearly here as well. So that's who is uh, speaking to Titus. But as to who the church is for, he's clear. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now there's a tricky word, the word elect. And it's difficult to understand at times. Uh, some refer to it as predestination. It is a biblical term, a biblical doctrine. In other words, it is clearly taught in Scripture. So it's something we must Understand, even if we can't completely wrap our head around something that has to do with the decision God's making based on information He's not telling us. We'll get into that later on. But election or predestination, probably seen most clearly in Ephesians 1 4 and 5. Just listen, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So it seems as if there's a decision made before we had anything to say about it. This was before we were born. And its misunderstanding can cause us all sorts of trouble, as if God had some tunnel of time He could look back and figure out what we would have done or said and makes His decision based on that. That isn't necessarily supported in Scripture. I think that this is a mystery. How is it that God can make a decision based on something we have yet to learn? Because He's God and we're not. So what I teach is that it's best to become very comfortable with the fact that there's many things in the Scriptures we just won't know completely until we see Him face to face. There's a mystery to it. Say, does this affect how we evangelize, knowing that God knows who's going to be saved and who's not? No, because we don't know who's going to be saved and who's not, so we keep knocking on doors until we find God's elect, right? That's what Jerry Falwell used to say. The more doors I knock on, the more elect I find. (laughs) And Charles Spurgeon said, it's not like they're marked with a yellow stripe down their back, so we can figure out which ones we need to witness to and which ones we don't. But think of it this way. If we think of election in terms of of biblical logic, it helps us make more sense. This helps me. It's a location in Acts 18. And this is where Paul's discouraged. This is verses 9 and 10. He's in uh, Corinth of all places. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So keep preaching, Paul, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And here's... The critical sentence for I have many in this city who are my people Paul's in Corinth and there's no church in Corinth at that point seems as if God is saying Paul there's something I know that you don't I have many people in this city and they've yet to be saved but the Lord knows it so what does this tell Paul keep preaching Paul because I know people will be saved I'm telling you, don't be quiet. You keep preaching, even if it's Corinth. People will hear my word and they will be saved. So any of these missions efforts that you support, people will be saved if God has people in those locations. This gives you a freedom and boldness to speak the word of God without worrying whether or not you have to be clever enough or persuasive enough or charismatic enough or handsome enough. To get people to listen. Just like Lydia, we learned Wednesday night, uh, by the river, God opened her heart to understand the words that Paul was saying. So it's really not the pastor's business who the Holy Spirit opens their heart to understand what the speaker is saying if he's speaking from the Word of God. But to answer that question, who is the church for? For the churches, for God's elect, rather. Are you part of God's elect? Well, if you're saved, you are. Then the church is for you. Some people like to say, the church isn't about me. And I understand that. We, we, we think of it that way. This is not about me. This is about the Lord. But biblically speaking, Paul says, this church is for you. It's just not only about you. Remember that. Your family. It's about all of you. And it's not only just about all of you, but some in this town that aren't here yet. The Lord knows who he has in this place. So we keep preaching. We keep teaching. We keep soul winning. So that's who the church is for. It's about your brothers and sisters in Christ as well as those who have yet to be saved. Point number two. What is the church about? We know who it's for and that's God's elect. We carry on here for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. That is a wordy couple of verses. This is where I heard it said this way and I like it. Paul is writing tight. There's not a lot of extra words. He packs them in real tight and you have to pay close attention to make sure you get them all out. Remember, this is condensed. We've got to add water. So let's pull a few things out of here. First, for the sake of the faith, that's one category, and God's elect and their knowledge, that's a second category, their knowledge is of the truth and that accords with godliness. But then there's hope. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the world began. That's a third category. So if you're circling words, if, if you do that in your Bibles, and uh, I hope you mark your Bibles. How does the saying go? If, if you mark your Bibles, your Bibles will mark you. And if, you, if you're obsessive compulsive you like everything real neat, all right, write your notes on a piece of paper and then go use your ruler and your really fancy pen and write them all pretty when you have a desk. But mark your Bibles and make notes. Three words here, faith, knowledge, and hope. And these are what the church is about. These are the tools of our trade. There's more than this, but this is a great way to to, to look at at, uh, the whole ball of wax from at least three different angles. Faith, knowledge, and hope. So first, we must be about the faith of those we minister to. We want to strengthen their faith. Faith is a pillar that any church is built on. And we see that word faith come up again in verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. So there's something they're in on together there. Now let's make, we, make sure we know what the word faith is. One of the best places to go in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you've spent any time in Awana, you know this verse. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And then it goes on into all these men who used faith to do things they couldn't do because they couldn't see with their eyes what should be. Go back to the book of Judges and all the things that had to be done, armies that needed to be defeated but these people must exercise faith that God was true when he said he'll give them the victory. Just the idea of you believing that there is a God and we're not all products of some massively chaotic accident, that requires your faith. We can't see that. We can't put it in a test tube and reenact it to make sure that's what exactly happened. Certain things in Scripture we're going to need faith for. But then when we pile all those things up, All these things most surely to be believed. You have another verse, like in Jude, verse 3. There's no chapters in Jude, it's just one. So Jude 3 is verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is using faith to describe the whole body of truth that we embrace by faith. We've got to build faith. How do you build your faith? Well, that's the next step. Secondly, we must search for knowledge. Add knowledge to faith. How many of you think or thought that faith was something that you just trust in blindly? You just close your eyes and you, you grit your teeth real hard. Okay, I've got faith. Or are you one of these that use your brain a lot more and you think, no, I'm going to need a hook to hang that faith on? Exactly. These two are tied together. When, 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 when someone asks you to believe that there was a God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, you're going to need some more information there before that makes sense. It's not going to make total sense. You're still going to have to exercise faith to believe something you can't see. But the more knowledge you have, the stronger your faith is. Now you'll need faith to start in Genesis 1 with a really big God who can do other things like convince a fish to swallow a backslidden preacher, Jonah, or any of these other miracles that seem far-fetched You're going to need some knowledge. You go off to college with nothing but some blind faith just because your parents said you should, with no knowledge and no understanding, you will be eaten alive because these people know their side of what they believe even though what they believe is false. But you're going to need some knowledge to go along with it. And sometimes I'm discouraged by people that... They kind of push back at that. They, they talk about knowledge negatively. Like, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable around Christians who all they want to do is know more about the Bible. That makes me nervous. But it should make you nervous in a good way. You should know more about the Bible. That knowledge is going to increase your faith and your faith knowledge. Jesus put it this way. You shall know the truth. And how does it go? The truth shall set you free. So does it follow that you're only as free as the truth you know? You know little truth, you have little freedom. Lots of truth, lots of freedom. Remember, he's saying here, knowledge in the truth is what he's referring to. So we must look at it this way. In Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. You've got both Faith here and understanding, which is knowledge. The book of Proverbs is full of knowledge and understanding and was designed to take young men and make sure they had what they needed under their belt before they ever hit the problems of life so that it didn't shake it out of their other ear. Faith, knowledge, understanding. And think of it this way. No amount of faith can make up for a lack of knowledge. Just as much as no amount of knowledge can make up for a lack of faith. You can have somebody who knows more about the Bible than, than practically anyone else. But without the faith to believe that it's true, then they're left short. Now notice what follows here. It says that this knowledge in the truth, which accords with godliness. What is godliness? Godliness. That's your behavior, isn't it? You ever know anybody that knows a lot about the Bible, but as far as their godliness, maybe not so much? Ever know anybody that doesn't know anything about the Bible, but they seem quite godly? It's put on. Without an understanding of what God expects of us, how are we to know how we're supposed to act? Knowledge is where we get our behavior we'll refer to it this way a number of times as we go along believing is behaving you can write that down we'll use it a lot but think about that believing is behaving the way that this will come together quickest for you is when you leave this place and go back to work or to school or to the grocery store lost people expect you To behave according to what you believe. And they'll tell you. All that stuff y'all believe over there in that pretty church doesn't amount to what? A hill of beans. If you're ugly and you're mean to me. Or if your life is duplistic. You're just like any of the rest of us. You prove that I don't need any of that. Well, this is one of Paul's big themes in here. Your believing is going to have to be supported with your behaving. And that comes from knowledge, which accords with godliness. It accords, it meshes with it, it links up with it. No such thing is the true knowledge of God without godliness that follows. And then third, we must encourage and be encouraged by our hope in Christ. So here's all three of them, faith, knowledge, and hope. And the hope here that is referring to is uh, the eternal state, our eternal life that we have in Christ. This world has hope, and they look for it all over the place. And you know that the best-selling novels, best-selling stories, the blockbuster movies, the good guy always wins, right? We like a good story where it ends correctly, where there's hope that it's going to be all right, that, that's stamped inside of us. Paul talks about that in Romans quite a bit. But there really is that way, truth, and life, some of us heard in Sunday school this morning. And that must be put in this place, in hope. That's where the hope must be placed. So where does the church put its hope? Well, before the foundations of the world, God promised that we could live forever. We'll read it again. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Why'd Paul put it that way? The God that never lies. Would well, you know anything about Greece, Crete, Cyprus, and all these islands down in the Mediterranean? They had a very elaborate, very dramatic Uh, belief system as far as deity goes in fact they actually had gods that came to earth and had children with men and they called those demigods if you've ever seen clash of the titans you know what these people knew about now what's consistent about most of the stories of those titans those gods they lied all the time They'd change the rules. They'd fight with each other, promise them something, and then turn around and do the opposite. They would mess around with each other's wives. It it, it looked like a long, elaborate soap opera. So when Paul is trying to talk about a God who promised something from forever past, he made sure to tell him he can't lie. He would cease to be God. Again, we talked about some of this in Sunday school this morning. There's, there's some things that God can't do. We need to get comfortable with that. When we're little, we, we sing the song, My God is so big, so mighty and powerful, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's theologically wrong. God can't lie. God can't die. And God cannot make a rock so big he couldn't pick it up. That would involve a contradiction that he willingly got himself into, which he would not do because he's God and he doesn't have to. But this God does not lie. If he promises us before the foundations of the world that there is this hope of eternal life, we can take that not to any of our banks, but the eternal bank. It's, in other words, just like Abraham uh, and, and Genesis 15 when the covenant was ratified, and animals were cut in half and split between this little pathway, and that's how they would make covenants, agreements with one another. They'd walk through these cut-up animals, and the idea was, uh, that should happen to us, we're cut in half, if either of us should, should make wrong on our agreement. Well, if you read in that chapter, this smoking lamp, or furnace came, and Abram was put to sleep, Abraham. He didn't even know what was going on. And God alone walked through those pieces of of the animals to make this point. I am hanging the covenant I have with mankind on my integrity alone. I can't hang it on a human's integrity. It would be lost. So Paul is saying the trustworthiness of this claim is hanging on the integrity of the God who cannot lie that's where our hope is so the church is for God's children and it's about strengthening faith knowledge and hope so number three how can the church know these things how does it know it well that's verse three and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior the word manifested there means made known or revealed. It once was a secret, but it's not anymore. Sometimes the company might do a, an unveiling, a product rollout. And sometimes they'll throw a big party for it. We're, we're, we're about to, to reveal the next iPhone. Everybody gets excited, not as much as they used to, but still some do. They stand out in line or sleep in a tent at the door so they can get the first one. This was rolled out, this truth that the world didn't always know about God. It was made known to them. And how was it made known? Through this, his word, his testimony to us. But there was a method by which this word was made known to these people. And that is through preaching. So just to back the truck up for a minute, what was made known? What was revealed at the proper time? the hope of eternal life that comes by faith and knowledge in the word of God, the best news the world has ever heard, that you can be saved and live forever. That's what was made known. Now, the gospel is referred to as the good news, right? That's the good news of the gospel. Paul will get very specifically clear about what even it means to be saved later on in this letter. But always remember, we don't, have anything special on the world we're just as lost as they are we just have better news we're not better people we just have better news this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how do we get this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ the hope of eternal life that comes by faith and knowledge of the word of God through preaching the words right there through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It's God's message given to Paul and his, his ability to, his conduit, his connection to the world is preaching. Is that what you expected? Think about all the, the, the things that changed the course of the world's history and how that information uh, was delivered But the best news of all time to a lost world that they can be saved was given to to men, to preachers with a book. And he didn't even say, you know what? I want you to be creative. And if you want to change this and that and the other to make it fit your group a little better, then feel free to do so. No, don't change any of it. In fact, I don't want you to tell them Anything other than what happened to me when God sent them out on their commission. Go into all the world, teach them whatsoever things I have commanded you. I'll be with you. But that's your message. So through the foolishness of preaching, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through their own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe." A lot of times after I'm done, preparing for a message and delivering it, uh, it's kind of like a weight's rolled off and it's time to go get something to eat and everything's great. But there's this thing that my father, who preached most of his life, said happens on Monday. He called it the Monday morning hangover. He said, that's where you'll realize what a miserable job you did of taking God's almighty word and trying to explain it to others. I love the word folly because that's usually what you can add it all up to. It's a, it's a fragile, fumbling attempt to shed light on the truth of God's Word. But that's the way God chose that we learn it. Humbling as it is. This is what we call the centrality of preaching. And as far as the church goes, it's priority number one. It's how we know what we know. And churches get goofy when they depart from the centrality of preaching. If if preaching isn't the top priority, then something else is, and usually it's something of their own making, it'll turn into maybe some elaborate country club or something as obnoxious as a town hall where they fight and their business meetings become their, their national sport where they they fight each other for what they think is best. It's better if the word does all the leading and the directing. The greatest ailment I see is affecting the church. I've, I gave this to you all that Wednesday night last month. Actually, it was a month before last. It's August now. Is a lack of confidence in God's Word to be sufficient to do the work of the ministry. And if a church loses that confidence, there, there's no impediment. There's, there's no... There's no way to overcome it. There'll be... They'll be left to trying to find some type of gimmick, some type of fad, some type of movement or or list of meetings, some agenda, a menu to try to convince people to come in and be a part of what we're doing. But if it's not the Word of God drawing the people of God, the church won't be built the way God intended for it to be. We must believe that. If God can't build a church on His Word, then it won't be built at all. So in the coming weeks, we're going to learn what God expects from the church through this little letter. This church, all the churches, but this one, it's as good for this church as it was for the house churches in Crete. We'll find out that we've got a lot in common. We'll find out that there's things that affected them that do not affect us, but none of us are off the hook. This is God's word. What he expects from our leadership, we'll learn a great deal about that from her membership and from their collective witness, again, outside the four walls of this place we gather. And we'll learn this all from Paul's letter to Titus. Paul's letter to Titus, again, is God's Word. As such, it won't be a suggestion, but a command. God designed His church, so He gets to say how it's put together. The question is, do you believe this? And it's best to get that out of the way before we continue. Because as we get into some of the things that Paul's going to be telling us, he's going to tell, he's actually going to tell this church, us included, what certain age groups of people should be doing with their time. What older men should be doing. What younger men should be doing and not doing. What older women should be doing with their time and not doing. Younger women the same. Children, employees, employers. He's going to get into your business, whether you invite it or not. So it's best at this point to decide, okay, this is my church, my class, my family. Do I take direction from God's word on how this is done? Or do I take that from my preference or tradition or what we've always done? Or any number of these things. It has to be determined if we believe these things, that there's a right way as opposed to a wrong way, that God gets to say how it's done. How we organize our leadership, how we treat each other and how we treat especially those outside the church. So what we're going to attempt to do every Sunday, but particularly as far as church goes, we're going to seek to understand what Paul wrote to Titus. That's the first task. We've got to understand what he said and what it meant. And then the second part is how we are going to obey it. Here and now what what that I like to call that is we're going to take the wasness of Crete and Titus and plop that down in the middle of the isness of Wake Chapel in 2018. We've got to we've got to build a bridge across it, understand and then obey. That's how I like to do it. If, if you'll save a nickel every time you hear me say that a couple of weeks, you might even be able to buy a candy bar. Um, You keep going, you might have enough to buy uh, your child that first car. I don't know. I like to say it a lot. How do we understand? How do we obey? If we can do those two, I think God will be pleased. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. May we live under its authority. May we take our direction from its commands. May we allow this church to take on the shape and the form of the one who died to make it possible. May we be happy and willing and ready to be obedient to you in these ways. Thank you for Paul and a man named Titus and a whole group of people that gathered together in homes so long ago. Lord, may you stoke in our our hearts the, the fire of what it truly means to be active disciple-makers, those called little Christs, Christians. Lord, we ask this week that you give us the opportunity to do just that and to encourage one another within this building to build each other up for the work of the ministry. We expect great things from your word, and we thank you for the time we had together today in your house ask all this in your precious name.
1: Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we close this time of worship, we thank you that we are able to open your word, to study it, and to worship you, our creator and sustainer. Lord, thank you for this exciting time as we welcome our new pastor and a new era here at Wake Chapel Christian Church. Thank you for sending us our new pastor. And I pray each and every one of us will keep Isaac and his sweet family in our prayers daily. Help us as a church family to support them any way we can. I pray, Lord, that we will be a beacon of light to our community and beyond. We pray today for our mission of the week, Amazing Grace Adoption. Amazing Grace Grace acknowledges the sanctity of life. Amazing Grace Adoption provides counseling to birth parents, To assist them in making a permanent, secure plan for their children. Domestic and international adoption services will be provided to eligible families to meet the agency's criteria. We ask, Lord, we ask these in all prayers in Jesus' name.